Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all this morning. Isn't that the truth? Glad that we are all here today. Definitely grateful this morning for people's physical safety after Sunday night, even though certainly there has been some property loss. Um, I mean, it's incredible that the death toll was not something scary. So we can be grateful for that. Uh, We'll remember those in our community who are still wading through um, this morning in our prayers and also for those who may have just not tried to get here this morning because north and south is not easy to traverse this morning and probably won't be for a time. Um, But we've been getting some questions or I've been getting some questions emailed to me from people listening to the podcast of this class, which is super fun. So hi, everybody listening to the podcast. Um, (laughs) Wish you were here. So let's open with a prayer and we'll jump in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we come to you today with grateful hearts, made especially more grateful for keeping all of us physically safe through the storms on Sunday night. As we clean up in our community, I ask your special presence with those who have suffered significant loss, that they may be met with hope for a brighter future. I also ask for inspiration and courage given to those of us who are able to help, that we are tasked with good work that will help those in need rebuild. Be with all of our friends who cannot be here today, those who need your healing touch, and those who need to remember that they are not alone. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So a quick reminder that we've got email sign-up lists at the doors, and if you have not received an email reminder, we send one a week about this class. If you haven't been getting those and want to get those, please make sure you sign up on the way out so that we can put you on that email list just in case something happens, like the church loses power or something like that. We're able to stay in touch with you very quickly. Also, I want to remind you that name tags are really great. As you come to class, we have guests with us, people who are not members of St. Michael, and we love that you are here. But in order to be most hospitable, if you are a member of St. Michael, please do wear your name tag so people know your names, can identify you in case they've got questions about the church. And if you are a visitor and like coming on Wednesdays, even if you don't come on Sundays, you're welcome to get a name tag too. And so if you need a name tag, or if you've lost like your fourth name tag again, um, then just stop by the receptionist desk that's right back here, and you can sign a little sheet on the desk and we will make name tags for you so you can have one when you come to class or come to church or come to any of our special events here at St. Michael. So this morning we are looking at chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Genesis. Last week we finished up with chapter 4. Chapter 5 is relatively simple. We'll cover that real fast in just a second. But we are looking at chapter 6, 7, and 8. We are effectively doing each chapter as one part of today's lesson. First, chapter six, we're going to discuss wickedness, which is such a good word. I like that word. Chapter seven is the flood, the drama, 
And then chapter 8 effectively is the end of the flood or the return of dry land. So we're going to get to these three parts, these three chapters, 6, 7, and 8, in those three sections. But beforehand, I want to take a look at one question that I received and then a quickie on chapter 5. So I got an interesting question from someone who listens to us online. And the question is, after having heard the lesson on Adam and Eve and how life, you know, this implication of atonement, the question is, what's Anglican take on atonement theories and atonement theology and comment on life being hard and when we choose not God. So let's take atonement first. Atonement is an idea that is very common in Christian theology. It has for a long time been explained effectively as we cannot save ourselves. And so God sent Jesus, his son, to be sacrificed on our behalf. So the classic atonement theology is built around this idea that God responds best to a sacrifice. Now we see that, we will see that with this story of the flood. Because the first thing Noah does when he gets out of the ark is he builds an altar, makes a sacrifice, and it smells good to God. So there is this sense that is all throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament that God is looking for a sacrifice. There is nothing wrong with that ancient notion of sacrifice. However, in the New Testament, through epistles and letters, there is this sense of uh, the writers are trying to make sense of what Jesus' death really means. If you put yourself in the place of the early disciples, Jesus as Messiah would have been understood to have been a, re, uh, a reawakening of the strength of Israel, right? Messiah had been, up to that point, akin to a political and military power that would overthrow Rome and cast them out, all right? That was what everyone was expecting. All along the way, Jesus is asked by people, are, are you, are you going to do it now? You know, okay, so if you're the Messiah, are you going to do it now? Which, in essence, is you're going to kick Rome out. Even John the Baptist, who heralds Jesus' arrival at one point from prison, sends some of his friends to ask Jesus, are you actually the one, because I thought you were, and I kind of told everyone you were, but you're not really doing anything. And so are you going to do this now, or was I wrong? That moment, writ large, is what the disciples were trying to figure out because here was Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. He seemed to fulfill the prophecies, all except he wasn't physically overthrowing Rome. And then Rome killed him. But then he rose from the dead. And what then does that all mean? And they're wrestling with this question of what is the Messiah if the Messiah isn't that thing we thought it would be? Part of what develops is a link between Jesus's death and the right kind of sacrifice that God wants. So this idea and language around Jesus as the lamb of God. Lamb is not because lambs are sweet. Lamb is because lambs are sacrificed. All right, the lambs are literally bled on our behalf 
in order to make God happy. So there is a direct link between lamb sacrifice, blood sacrifice, and Jesus's blood sacrifice, that Jesus literally bled in order to satisfy God on our behalf. Does that make sense? It's important, I think, for us to say what is going on in the first century mind so that we are able to draw a link between the ways in which the Gospels were written. The earliest Gospel in our Bible, Mark, and even some of the earlier ones like Thomas, Mary, Peter, and others that are not in our Scriptures, do not have what we might call a very high Christology of sacrifice. John does. John was written multiple decades after Mark. And you can see that John articulates an idea that links to atonement in a way that the earliest disciples did not. Our question today is whether or not their understanding of atonement makes most sense to us. If we are to say that God needs blood in order to be satisfied, then the classic way of looking at atonement, of Jesus physically bleeding for us, makes sense. I want to say before we go on, that is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I also then want to just invite you to consider that God's desire for us might ultimately be a little more sophisticated and complex than blood sacrifice. That we may be able and be comfortable with Jesus's gift for us as being grounded in this sense of love, not a blood sacrifice to satisfy God. That Jesus's gift of doing everything possible to convince us that we are loved is actually why he died. Now that is a nuanced consideration because Jesus still did die. And I had a professor once ask, does it matter if Jesus actually physically died? And the question arose because some of you may or may not know this, the largest single story of anybody in the Quran is actually Jesus. The Quran has the entire story of Jesus's divine birth, Jesus's ministry, miracles. And when it gets to the point where Jesus is crucified, the story in the Quran shifts. And what the Quran says is the miracle of Jesus's crucifixion is that the people thought he had died, but really God saved him. And God used everyone's belief in his death and resurrection to change hearts and minds to grow closer to God. Now, that is not what we see in the New Testament. But it's an interesting perspective because it does beg the question, would that kind of story be good enough? Would that kind of story that focuses on the idea of love actually kind of work for us? 
if the blood sacrifice piece was taken out? That's a difficult question. And I remember being posed that question as a probably a 20 year old and thinking, sure, that sounds fine. Does Jesus really have to die? No, I don't know now. I actually think that there is something powerful about the literal death so that God can be remade in a way that invites us into a life that we cannot see, into this hopefulness that passes beyond whatever we think the world can give us. So at this point, I think it is important that Jesus actually did die and that Jesus was resurrected because it speaks to God's eternal power to take even death itself and overcome. That matters to me. So I offer that to you as a way of considering atonement. What doesn't matter to me, and let me rephrase that. What I don't like is that God needs blood. That does not seem to work with God most of the rest of the time. God instead seems to be one of grace. And what we are going to see in the story of Noah and why I thought it was appropriate to talk about atonement today is Noah, we might say Noah found favor with God. That's what scripture says. But if we actually want it to be most accurate, what really happened is that God's grace found Noah. Noah didn't do anything. Noah wasn't some perfect person. I mean, beyond chapter eight, next week, we're gonna see Noah was actually quite imperfect. It was not Noah's perfection. It was God's grace that actually found Noah and used Noah's gifts to help heal the world. That's what really happened. And so for me, we almost take Jesus' sacrifice and flip it not that God needed the blood, but that God's love for us was so total and complete that God wanted to show us that death itself cannot even separate us from that true love. All right. So I'm going to just stop there and say that is kind of heady and perhaps less... Uh, <coughs> defined, then you may like it. So ask a question. Think on it. Email me. Write the questions down. Um, just like we've done in the past with prayer and other ideas, we can explore this idea over weeks and weeks. All right? So it's not just once and done. We can, be, we can explore this idea together. All right. Let's look at chapter 5. Actually, not really. Chapter five. So let me stop and just say, is there a question? Because I feel the weight of the room with this idea of atonement. Anyone want to ask something? Yes. So the question is, 
I love that question. That's such an Episcopalian question. Somewhere in the Bible it says, you know, I love that. Um, Episcopalians are like, I kind of think that that's something. Um, so the question being, you know, somewhere in the Bible doesn't it say something about how God doesn't really need the sacrifice, right? So yes, kind of. There are, so let me start by saying, Remember, the Bible is stories written by people, okay? So, we can't ever say, the Bible says. So, we're going to start there. If anyone ever tells you the Bible says a thing, they're just wrong. Because the Bible says everything and anything, okay? You can pick any verse anywhere and say the Bible says. That's not, that's, that is too simplistic, we are more sophisticated than that. So the Bible says is difficult. I will say, however, most often, the way that stories are told around worship and sacrifice emphasizes, no. The stories that have meant the most to believers over time, that's what I really wanna say, are the stories that emphasize not the sacrifice itself, but the meaning behind the sacrifice. I mean, one great example of this is King David. David is wildly imperfect. I mean, he is just about as messy as any character in the entire Bible. I mean, he is a hot mess. He cannot make decisions. He cannot maintain relationships. He steals, he borrows, he kills. He just thing after thing after thing. So why is David so important? Like why over time is David lifted up as this icon or ideal of faithfulness if David is such a mess? It gets at your question. David, over and over again, does two things. He is sorry, he repents, and when he gives of himself in worship, he gives sacrificially. There are actually moments in David's story where he argues with other people about the sacrifice not being sacrificial. So there is, on the one hand, and this is kind of a Cain-Abel issue, right? On the one hand, you can make a sacrifice. You can physically give a gift. That is okay. But until that gift, until that sacrifice is actually sacrificial, it's not really enough. Does God need our sacrifices? No. Does God want us to give sacrificially? Yes, because it is in the giving sacrificially. We actually are changed. What God really wants is for our hearts and minds, our souls to be transformed. That is the truth. So it is not about whether your lamb is clean or not. It is not about the technical amount that you give. It is fundamentally about whether your gift is sacrificial. Think about the widow and her mites, right? That widow and her mite story is so annoying because it is perfectly God's economy. And we just 
don't really like that stuff because we like to put value on things apart from whether or not they are fully sacrificial. You know, we talk all the time, it's stewardship, right? And so people say to me all the time, well, don't I give enough? I don't know, I cannot tell you whether you give enough. You know whether you give enough. And I say all the time, give until you feel it. That's the point. So if 2% is something you really feel and it is hard, you give enough. If 10% is nothing and you feel nothing, you're not giving enough. So don't falsely put some number on top of your giving. The idea here is that we give sacrificially because it is in that sacrificial giving we then are changed and that's what God wants. Any other questions? You know where what is? Okay, where? Oh, Amos. Whatever. Thank you. All right, Amos 5. Go read it. You'll enjoy it. Okay. So, let's move on. Keep asking questions if you have them. Chapter 5, so last week we did focus on chapter 4. Chapter 5 is a genealogy. Effectively, chapter 5 gets us from Adam to Noah. And so we go through who has who has who has who. So Adam to Seth, right? Cain and Abel, that first experiment did not work. And so Adam and Eve have another child, Seth. And it's Seth's line that we get the, some of the people we know about, like Methuselah, right? Methuselah lives a long time. Methuselah has Lamech, and Lamech has Noah. Noah then proceeds to have Shem, Ham, and Japhet, and we'll talk about them next week. We get to Noah, and we find ourselves in a sort of a pickle on earth. So turn to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. We land there in the narrative arc after all of the begats. But I want you to hold that in your mind because part of the wickedness that the Lord sees on the earth has to do with what comes just a few verses before that, where we talk about the sons of God and the Nephilim. So we're going to have a little mythic moment here. This is a very weird few verses of chapter six. The sons of God and the Nephilim. I will start by saying, we don't really know what this is. We do have a sort of guess. And by we, I say, not we, the royal we of biblical scholars. And so I read what smart people say, and then I try to tell you. So we have this idea that 
the sons of God and the Nephilim, hearken back to some idea of the literal meaning of the word Nephilim, giants. There is this sense of dragons and giants and unicorns and whatever, right? That's not modern. There is this understanding of mythic things used to be. And so they've incorporated this idea of the mythic things into the story of Noah. Sons of God could quite literally be sons of God. I mean, remember they're writing the story while they are in exile. And the Assyrian and Babylonian myth stories sound very similar in their structure to what we would know as like Greek and Roman myth stories. Gods have babies. And those babies, like an Achilles, is the kind of person who is sort of part God and part human. So there's the sense that there are these angelic heavenly beings that could have theoretically had children with humans. Those sons of God are kind of walking around back in the day. So you've got this genealogy of people from Adam to Noah, and along with it, this almost alternate reality of intermixing of divine and human beings. Okay, there's that. Then there's also the Nephilim. Nephilim literally in the Hebrew means either fallen or giant. You can sort of take it either way. It could be that the Nephilim here are meant to categorize all of the most evil people. Or the only other time this word is used in the Bible is in describing the giant people who live in the land of Canaan. If you remember the story of the Exodus, Noah, sorry, Noah, Moses has led the people out of Egypt. They receive the commandments at Mount Sinai, and then they go to the edge of the promised land, and they send 12 spies into the promised land, and they come back, and 10 of those spies say, the people are giant. They're bigger than us. We will not be able to defeat them. We've got to figure out a plan B. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, no. God has been faithful to us up to this point, and God will continue to be faithful to us. We can go in, and we will win if God is with us. Well, the 10 outweigh the two, and they decide that they need to figure out a plan B. They are not faithful in that moment because they see the Nephilim in Canaan. I say all that, and of course, then they're sent back out into the wilderness for 40 years, right? And that whole adult generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, are, have to die off before they can go back into the promised land. So that story is, for these writers, historic, right? Remember when this story is happening. Even, even though the chronology of this narrative is that this happened way before the Hebrews are in Egypt and the Exodus, the people actually writing this story are writing this centuries after the Hebrew people have come out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. So they are creating these stories, these historic stories, in order to explain some kind of reality that they know is true. What, was, what were these people afraid of in Canaan? The giants. 
So where do the giants come from? Well, they were even back with Noah as the evil people in the world. If the Nephilim are evil now, then isn't it a lot easier to understand that they were evil when God took the people in the promised land and they were slaughtered? This is a little tangential, sorry. In order to hurt other people, it is necessary for us to believe that they are less than us. That is just the human condition. If we believe that someone is worthy as we are, it is very hard to hurt them. Look back at any point in time when people are sent to ultimately do harm to others, there is at least a component of the narrative built around that, that those people have somehow earned or deserve the hurt. If you are looking back at the history of your people, and part of the story is effectively genocide, that is the taking of the promised land. If you've not read it recently, then I'll remind you that the Israelites slaughtered the non-Israelites who were already living in the promised land. Now, they did so, and the story that they tell is that there is this sacred purpose around retrieving that land. Believe whatever you want. The truth is, they killed a lot of people. We have to, they have to, at least on some level believe that those people deserved it. This is part of creating a tradition that allows for that sort of belief to take root. Those giants have been doing bad stuff for a really long time. So if they're killed, it's okay. Does that make sense? Even if we don't like it? Okay. So let's jump in to any questions about Nephilim, sons of God, before we get into Noah? All right, let's go back to the passage we read, chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. God sees a bunch of wickedness. God reacts, but he finds favor with Noah. These verses are really dynamic, and I want to pick them apart with these four reactions from God. First, God regrets creating humanity in the first place. That is a very interesting word to use because regret seems to imply that he didn't know what would happen, right? You can't really regret a thing you knew. And so there is this implication here that God created humanity and didn't know that things were gonna go off the rails and he regrets that he ever even did it. I think that's a really interesting idea because we tend to like thinking that God knows what's gonna happen. There is perhaps comfort in the idea that God's plan is set and everything that happens is part of that preordained plan. That tends to work when things go well, because obviously God wanted good things for me, duh. Or 
when things go so badly that there is no other way to comprehend how horrible the thing was, then there is a, an opportunity for us to reach a place where we have coped with the horrible experience by saying there must be purpose here. So God's purpose, I will be faithful to God's purpose. Even if that thing was horrible, maybe something better is coming. I think this kind of moment resonates really well with me because I don't like the preordained stuff. I think it is very problematic that God preordains horrible things. It's also problematic, by the way, that God preordains really wonderful things for some of us and not for all of us. So, I mean, it can go both ways. Instead, our faithfulness to our gifts can be blessed. That is okay. And when horrible things happen, God can come alongside us, even carry us through those horrible things and make good in the end. That is what we are seeing in this passage of Genesis. God's regret means that God did not know, but God remains faithful to helping make good out of this bad. Make sense? If you don't agree with me, ask a question, because that's what we're doing. Number two, God has grief in his heart. God's heart is pained. God's heart breaks. This is a wonderful image of God's love for us. I can remember as a, as a young priest, my very first year as a priest, there was in the community a pair of twin babies who died. And I remember my rector coming to me, I'm 28, right? My rector comes to me and says, I want you to watch this because this is as bad as it gets. It is, it is in our kind of worldly economy, it is okay to die naturally. It can be sad, but nobody feels, well, that's not true. It is most common to feel like a natural death at the end of a long life is okay because life has been lived well. That, that can have beauty. Twin babies dying is not beautiful. There is, there is nothing okay about that. And I remember that in his counseling with the family and subsequently in the funeral, the line he said was, God did not cause this, but God's heart was the first to break. That sounded to me so poetic until I realized it is so very biblical. Multiple times throughout scripture, God's heart breaks. This is one of those moments. We should not toss that off as something small. God is with us in the pain. God does not somehow stay above it, watching us suffer. That kind of with us 
is perhaps for me the point of the crucifixion. God's with us in everything, even death itself, so that we know God's strength overcomes it all. And so in this moment when God's heart is pained, there is something so very loving about God toward the humanity that has disappointed him in every way. Number three, God decides to blot out humanity, right? So God goes from regret to heartbreak to blot out. So this is the kind of reaction I would expect, right? Everything goes off the rails and there is this sense if we read it quickly, as I did the first time, I read anger, right? Blot out is this total erasure, just wiping. What, why would one do that if not out of anger? Except anger is not actually named here. So what else could blot out actually mean? The phrase here in Hebrew is very similar etymologically to the phrase that means forgiveness. There is a link here between blotting out, erasing, and forgiving and forgetting. The grace of God's forgiveness is that God forgives and forgets. God's forgiveness of us is a complete blotting out of the wrong. There is nothing left. And so the blotting out here is erasing all the bad. Now, in a global sense, we're going to get to the flood. But in the personal sense, when God blots out our offenses, what that really means is that we are completely from scratch clean and given a, another chance. God does not remember what we have done because once a relationship is repaired, what has been done is totally gone. And in essence, that's what this flood story is all about. What was wrong is now completely over, gone, erased, blotted out. And humanity gets this new chance. All right? And finally, that blotting out comes from God's grace. Are you kidding me? 11:10? Gosh, I talked too long. Okay. God blots out because of grace and love, and Noah finds favor with God. Okay. So Noah finds favor. Noah does not earn it or deserve it, but he gets it anyway. I'm going to start talking faster. So, <laughs> chapter 6, turn to verse 14. Because Noah found, finds favor with God, God wants to do something in this blotting out moment. So God says to Noah, verse 14, make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Jump to verse 17. For my part, I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. So Noah pleases God. In Noah, God sees the chance to remake what had gone wrong. 
a new creation, a new covenant, that grace has found Noah. Noah has something in him that God sees as the seed, literally and figuratively, of the new creation. Faithfulness is the key here because what Noah does is what God says. What God is telling Noah to do is total lunacy. We like it because we see in baby nurseries that cute boat with that, you know it, you've got the giraffes poking out of the window and you've got the, right? It is so cute and it is complete anarchy, right? If you think about what would this boat would be, it would be like a bomb had gone off, okay? It is, it is perhaps easy enough for me to say impossible. So it's important for us to see that the purpose behind the story is not literally every animal goes on a boat and floats around for a while, but it is figuratively God starts fresh and God uses the giftedness of this imperfect person to start something fresh and new. We all have the capacity to start new and fresh again, just like Noah. If we live our faithfulness with the kind of conviction that Noah does. All right. So Noah's faithfulness builds the ship. Flip to chapter seven. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are alone and are righteous before me in this generation. Verse seven of chapter seven. Noah, with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God has commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came on the earth. We are going to start by reiterating the parable nature of this story, right? We started off at the beginning of this, less of this study saying that this is not historic, this is true. If you remember the way that the earth was created, the earth is flat and above the earth is a dome and all the waters were held above the dome of the earth and under the earth. This physical belief, the way the earth is structured, is important because that's how the earth floods. One easy question you might ask is, where did all this water come from? We're getting there. I just simply want to say, just like the creation stories, they are not meant to be literal history. No Jew would have read this story at the time as literal history. They would have read these stories as imparting a truth about God's nature and our human nature. So, second point I want to make sure I make is that if you read this story straight, I hope you think it is redundant, right? Things are basically said twice, at least. And they're not said in the same way. Here's an example. Chapter six, verse 19 says, 
Of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you as to keep them alive with you. Compare that to chapter 7, verse 2, which says, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean. Now, wait a minute. Are you supposed to take a pair of every animal, or are you supposed to take seven pairs of the clean ones and one pair of the unclean ones? So we might say these authors are just not remaining consistent. Or there were two creation stories why can't there be two flood stories? What has effectively happened here is just as there were two creation stories kept separate, there were two flood stories that were mixed. Those two flood stories are coming at the flood with a somewhat different perspective. In the macro sense, it's the same story. Just like in the macro sense, the creation stories are the same. But in the micro sense, they're communicating a very different truth. The truth of creation story one and two is different, just like the truth of these two flood stories interwoven is different. One is concerned with Noah's faithfulness. The other is concerned with Jewish law. When chapter seven says, bring seven pairs of all clean animals with you, that links to a Jewish cleansing law. Not every animal is clean to be sacrificed. There are only certain animals that have a cleanness that allows them to be sacrificed to God. Of those animals, Noah better be sure he's got enough because when he gets off this boat and sacrifices some animals, he's not sacrificing snakes. He's sacrificing sheep. He has to sacrifice the clean animals as God has asked, or so says the Jewish law. Does that make sense? Okay. Sorry, I have to keep running. Finally, third point about the flood. This links very closely to a story that comes out of the Assyrian Babylonian culture. If you remember, Back with the creation stories, I told you about the Enuma Elish. There is another story that you have likely heard of, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Epic of Gilgamesh is a flood story that dates back to at least the 7th century BCE in the Assyrian library of King Ashurbanipal. Along with the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Gilgamesh was discovered as being this mythic story within the Assyrian and Babylonian cultures. Remember where the Israelites are. They are in exile, and they are telling a story with these myths that says, our God is better than your God. That is the point of these stories. So they have taken the creation story, the Enuma Elish, and they have one-upped the Babylonians in its telling. In the same way, they take this epic of Gilgamesh and they one-up the Babylonians and the Assyrians in the telling of the story. And it's subtle, but it is clear. In the epic of Gilgamesh, there is a big flood and there is a boat and there are animals on the boat and there is a man 
who effectively saves the world, just like Noah. But here's the difference. That man saves the world, period. In our story, God saves the man who saves the world. We see that in this beautiful little moment when God puts everyone in the ark. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the man shuts the door. What happens in our story? God shuts them in. Just like God made the clothes for Adam and Eve, God put the safety mark on Cain, God has taken everything that represents the future of creation and effectively put them in this ark. God shuts the door. So God, even in distress, despair, and heartbreak, cares for the creation. That is our story. And that is how it is very different than this one. Okay, questions about all that? All right then. Jump to chapter eight. We have hit the dry land. In chapter eight, let's just start at the beginning. But God remembered Noah. Just before this, at the end of chapter seven, they have been out floating in the water. The literal doors of heaven and fountains under the earth flood everything. So it's as if the actual dome opens. You know, imagine there are these little windows here and these windows literally slide open and just let the waters pour. That is their understanding. In the same way, there are fissures that break through the ground and water starts coming up from everywhere. Water is literally coming up and coming down and floods the earth real fast. That's important because in the flood, everything is destroyed. We don't often see the destruction. We see the cute giraffes hanging out the window of the ark. I just want to, not to be a downer, if everything dies in this flood, how nasty is the water? Just offering that as a thought. Okay. <laughs> let's, not be, let's not be too pretty about this, okay? Everything is destroyed, and the ark is out there floating on the water, and God remembers Noah. It's a very interesting phrase. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters gradually receded from the earth. Where did they go? Back down under the ground. Okay? We know how rain works. It doesn't just drain away. It recycles into the atmosphere, right? If you don't remember that from science, just trust me, it does. So that's what happens with water. 
It doesn't sort of disappear into the center of the earth, all right? Unless you like that story and then it's a good one. Okay, so the floods go literally down and back under the water. Sorry, where was I? Verse six, at the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. Verse eight, then he sent out the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set its foot and it returned to him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the earth. Second time, so he put out his hand, took it in and brought in the ark. So second time, he waited another seven days and again he sent out the dove from the ark and the dove came back to him in the evening and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf so that Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Third, then he waited another seven days and sent out the dove and it did not return to him anymore. This story is not meant to be literal. Noah sends out a dove the dove comes back, there's no land. He waits seven days. The dove goes and finds an olive branch. I mean, that olive tree grew fast, right? That is not how it works. But Noah does not stop at the second, right? The dove brings back an olive branch. That means there's land. Why then hold on to the dove for a third trip? The third time the dove does not come back because the point of the ark was not just to save the people and the animals. The point of the ark was to restart creation, which means the point of the dove was to show that a new home has been found. Not just that the land was dry, but that now the dove has a new home. The dove has presumably gone out to be fruitful and multiply in the same way that everyone in the ark will also leave the boat to be fruitful and multiply. That's my hand. If there's one dove leaving, how can they multiply? That's such a good question. Did you hear the question? If there's one dove leaving the ark, how can they be fruitful and multiply? Yep because it's not literal, that's how. Yes, okay, good question. So there is, there are, Flood stories in pretty much every Middle Eastern culture, right? They exist. I point out the Epic of Gilgamesh because that links to the Israelites being in, in exile in Babylon. But you look at any of those ancient Middle Eastern cultures, they all have a flood story, which means either they all really liked a flood story so they wanted to tell it, or there was actually a flood at some point. If you look geologically in that area, there could be a flood. Now remember, when we, when we read a story about the flood covering the earth, what are we thinking? We are thinking that the flood is literally covering the planet, right? When we hear the earth, we think planet because every one of us has seen a picture of the planet from space, okay? Ancient cultures, their whole world was their village, all right? So they didn't have this concept of planet. They had a concept of right here. 
And so if they're right here, which was a very finite place, flooded and destroyed everything, then the flood destroyed the world. Does that make sense? In addition, there is some geologic evidence. I, I don't know. I, I'm not a geologist. I haven't really read up on it. But there are evidence, there is evidence that even the Mediterranean Sea itself has been dry and has flooded over the history of the earth. The Straits of Gibraltar are actually so shallow and small that during ice ages, when the water level declines enough, the water doesn't actually connect with the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea, which over time will dry up the water in the sea because it's not being fed from anywhere else, which then creates salt, right? So the sea salt kind of cultures of the Mediterranean are built on this idea that they could go a lot farther into what had been covered by water at different periods of time in human history. That also means that as the planet warmed, there could have theoretically been a moment at which the Straits of Gibraltar connected again. And then what would that be? A flood. Right? If the Atlantic Ocean all of a sudden is feeding the Mediterranean again, that water's coming in hot and fast. And if you're all the way on the east side in the Middle East, they've got all that time for that water to build up momentum that would effectively create something like a tsunami. So could there have been a dramatic boom flood? Sure, because the geography of that area actually lends itself to that kind of flood moment. Okay, thank you. Real quickly before we end, um, we will next week go into covenant. But I want to note at the very end of chapter 8, Noah gets off the boat and Noah immediately builds an altar to the Lord and worships. Just like Cain and Abel seem to naturally look to worship God, no choice. Noah does the same thing. And when Noah builds that altar, verse 20, Noah burns the offerings of every clean animal and every clean bird on that altar. And the Lord smelled the pleasing odor and said in his heart, this is verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God has, in this cleansing, done it once and for all. That also differs from the epic. God has done this as a way of restarting creation, but there's the implication here that God has also learned that humanity is flawed, and that flaw is not something he can blot out. And so rather than try to blot out that flaw, God will begin to come at us, to get us, and to bring us to him with more and more clarity. In our great ark, beginning with this new covenant and renewing the covenant over and over again, we ultimately land on Jesus. God tries more and more to get our attention and for us, we believe that God's Hail Mary pass, no pun intended, is 
Jesus himself physically coming into the world because the flood doesn't work, the promises and the conversations and the children and the saving from slavery and even the prophets, that stuff doesn't work. And so God comes himself in order to finally bring us, even in all our imperfections, to him. We will end there today. Write your questions, send me a note, and we'll be with chapters nine and beyond next week. Thank you all.